with me to page 914. It's Luke chapter 6. I'll begin reading in verse 20. You know, last Sunday for our last sermon in our old sanctuary, I preached for you the very first sermon that I preached as a past year at Talatha. And then last Sunday night for the last, last sermon in our old sanctuary, I gave you the first Christian sermon. We looked at Peter's Pentecost sermon in the book of Acts. So while we're doing last sermons and first sermons, today's text will be Christ's sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, as it's called. But for today, I want to do all of it. And for our sake, it's easier to do all of it when we look at the Luke version of it, as it's only about half a chapter rather than being three chapters like Matthew's recording of it. You should understand that this sermon is Christ's quintessential teaching. It's not that Luke heard it one way and that Matthew heard it another way. It's rather that Christ preached this over and over again in different scenarios. Uh, he was like an evangelist, sharing his message. And so wherever he went and wherever the crowds followed him, he shared the same message again and again. So here we have it written in Luke's words from Peter's hearing. So as we look at this today, what, what we ought to think about is, as Christ is going to preach about the morals in his kingdom, we first need to know and just recognize how very highly moral the world is. Do you believe that? How very righteous and moral the world is around us. Have you not seen it? The world's awfully righteous. Oh, if you're not looking, you're going you're gonna to miss this. There are so many righteous causes out there right now. There are so many issues that are of utmost importance and you need to be on the righteous side of this issue. I mean, don't you see that there's a great deal of morality in our culture, a great deal of righteousness. It's just all wrong. It's all misplaced, but it's not without zeal. Not without people who are awfully proud and awfully find, you know, find things important that simply are not the right things, perhaps. We're all tired of hearing about it and we're all tired of talking about it, but perhaps COVID gave us a glimpse of just how righteous people can be. There are people crusading about the righteousness of lockdowns, whether they were or were not, or masks or vaccines, or whether one should attend church or not, or whether it was okay to attend church if it wasn't just like this or not. Everyone pontificating righteously about what was morally correct that you had to do or that you should not do. See, I contend with you that our culture is highly moralistic and highly righteous. They're just wrong. The world is highly righteous, just not with the righteousness of Christ. People get up on soapboxes and preach and go on moral crusades about freedom, about identity, about gender, about pronouns, against socialism on the one hand or against fascism on the other hand. There is, in fact, so much moral crusading that it's impossible to miss this. There's moral crusading about diet and what you can eat and what you can't eat. We're an awfully moral society in this sense, wouldn't you agree? The trouble is, the things that the world becomes zealous about and holds up as morality is not the same as Christ. 
So it is impossible, the old phrase where people used to say, oh, Christ was a great moral teacher. Oh, he's a moral teacher, all right. But it'd be hard to call him a great moral teacher unless you're going to follow him because Christ's morality, the morality and righteousness of the kingdom of God is nothing like the righteousness and morality of the kingdom of the world. His kingdom and its righteousness are opposite of our world. I tell you, even as we look at this passage today, what you're going to see is the culture that Christ is preaching to, the Pharisees of Israel, their righteousness that was awfully zealous and was awfully righteous, but about all the wrong things, actually mirrors our culture very well for us. See, the Pharisees, they were adamant about their rules and about their traditions but they weren't adamant about the things of God. Likewise, we live in a culture that's very righteous and zealous, but not about the things of God. And so you'll see by the end of this passage, everything is really a choice. The world or the kingdom of Christ? The morality of the world? Will you go righteously crusading for their morals, or will you live by Christ's? Let's pray together, and we're going to see these three different ways In fact, before we get to reading this, before we pray, before we read this, there are are three issues, areas of morality that Christ is going to address today that the world has a very different opinion about. So go on, you tell me about each area. Our culture, our world, it has certain opinions about wealth and poverty. Not all unified, but there's a lot of people who have highly moral opinions about wealth and about poverty think about it. What are they? There are plenty who say if you're wealthy, it's because you're right. Wealthy people are the ones who did things right. There's plenty of cults of celebrity around wealthy technocrats and entrepreneurs, is there not? There's also plenty of other books published about here's how I worked hard in the grind and got wealthy and you can too. For many, wealth is seen as a moral good for anyone to receive. It's everywhere. It's not new. You've known about this for a long time, but it's everywhere still. There's certain other people who say if it's poor, if you are poor, it's your fault, right? You should do better. There's other people who say if you're poor, it's never your fault, and it will always be government intervention that needs to happen in order to cure poverty. Plenty of others who, without even saying it, will assume that your purpose is to consume. The world has a lot to say about wealth and poverty. None of it is what Christ has to say. The world world has lots of opinions about love and friendship, allies. Love is an awfully popular word, isn't it? But the world's understanding of that morality is contrary to Christ's. The world has a lot of opinions about judgment And most of them are all unified. You can't judge anyone. You shouldn't judge anyone. This is not the way of Christ. So now, let's pray together and let's hear what Christ has to say about these very issues. Father God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that you speak so clearly to us. And I pray now that when we hear your word, we would not harden our hearts that we would open our hearts and that we would believe. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Chapter 6 of Luke's Gospel, verse 20. Looking up at his disciples, Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. Blessed are you who are now hungry, because you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, because you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they insult you and slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. Take note. Your reward is great in heaven, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort. Woe to you who are now full, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who now laugh, for you will weep and mourn. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For this is the way their ancestors used to treat the false prophets. Let's stop there. Jesus has some awfully powerful words to say about wealth and about poverty. I think the best way to sum it all up is this. It's not necessarily what you have, but what you pursue. In this life, you are at your leisure to pursue all kinds of different ends. What will you pursue with your life? Will you spend your life pursuing having everything that you need? Comfort? Will you spend your life pursuing being full? laughing? Is your life an unserious thing where you spend it pursuing all of the things of the world? Or is your life spent about pursuing the things of Christ? I don't think what Jesus is teaching here, especially if you understand this along with his same teaching in, in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, I don't think his teaching is that you're automatically wrong for being wealthy or you're automatically wrong or right for being poor. Rather, I think the answer is, what are you pursuing in this life? If you dedicate your entire life to pursuing the things of this world, you can get them. But then you'll be empty. You'll have had your comfort and it will go. Or you can spend your life pursuing the things of Christ. And then you will have them. That's what Jesus is teaching. There's only the two options. You'll see a similar teaching in uh, John, John the Apostle, in the book of Revelation, when he speaks to the church at Laodicea, in Revelation chapter 3, he calls out by a word from the Spirit of God, and he says, y'all, that church in Laodicea, I know you guys well, and y'all are out there saying, we're rich, we're blessed, we have everything we need. But then Jesus speaks to them and says, but I'm telling you, you are poor and impoverished, and you have nothing Jesus says to them, I counsel you to come to me and to buy from me. See, the church in Laodicea, they were doing fine. They were building all kinds of buildings. They had everything that they wanted. They were dressed finely. When they ate, they ate. The church in Laodicea had everything that they need, and they were rejoicing in this. But Christ said, you are not pursuing me. You're using everything that you have, your time and your wealth, to pursue the things of this world when you were supposed to be pursuing me. So Christ says, I, Christ says, I counsel you to come to me, to come and purchase from me, because the things that Christ will give them are enduring forever. 
and the things that they can buy in the world will all fade away. Dear congregation, it might be strange to say this, but the application for each of us today is this. Find your poorness. You need to find your poverty. You need to sacrifice what must be sacrificed to pursue Christ. It's not to say that it's wrong for you to be wealthy. If God's blessed you, God bless you indeed. And to be sure, it's awfully easy to get around and to do things when you have more than when you have less. But the calling for you, dear Christian, is to seek first Christ's kingdom and his righteousness and let everything else worry about everything else and let Christ provide for you as he provides for you. Perhaps one application for us is this. So today, children, my children's age, any of you in elementary school, middle school, high school, the surveys today when you ask, apparently, not you guys, but when you ask other elementary school, middle schoolers or high schoolers, the surveys today are that, you know, when you ask, hey, what do you want to do with your life? The answers, the top answers are no longer like, oh, doctor or even athlete. Now the top answer is always YouTuber. I'd like to be a streamer. As my favorite streamers and YouTubers out there, I'd like to be an influencer. I'm going to get a lot of followers on social media. This becomes a preference for this generation. And you know what, honestly, the dude perfect guys seem to have it pretty good, right? I mean, they're a lot of fun. I'd hang out with them and eat a burger. They seem to be doing pretty well. God bless them. But I think perhaps for you, you ought not to pursue notoriety. You shouldn't pursue in your life followers. You shouldn't pursue in your life influence. But rather, I think the good life is in pursuing obscurity. What if, you know, every, every child, every person, even as you grow into adult, everybody wants to be known, right? And wants to be known for something, whether you care about influencers or not. But maybe the better life for all of us is to pursue our own obscurity while we are pursuing Christ's notoriety. Perhaps the goal for us ought to be to make much of the name of Christ and little of our own name. Perhaps the better life is the quiet saint who seeks to help many other people trust Christ and doesn't care at all who knows their name or anything about them. I think this is the life of Christ. Perhaps the greater preachers, perhaps the greater pastors and missionaries are the ones that you never heard of, but who are serving faithfully. Perhaps the ones that are great in the eyes of God are not the ones who had great ministries, but the ones who had to go about raising support for themselves and live impoverished, but for the sake of seeking many lost sheep of Israel, many lost ones of Christ. Let us no longer care about wealth. Let us no longer care about fame. But let us seek Christ and his kingdom. This is what he thinks about wealth. Not that the poor are good and need to rise up and take the wealthy. Not that the wealthy are good because they've done right. But that we ought to leave behind the system of the world and wealth altogether in order to pursue Christ in everything. Where is your heart? Dear congregation... Find the poorness of your heart for the sake of Christ. The world has a lot of opinions about wealth, yeah? I tell you, the world also has a lot of opinions about love, does it not? Well, let's see what Christ has to say about love. Verse 27, 
Jesus said, but I say to you who listen, love, love your enemies. Do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If anyone hits you on the cheek, offer also the other. If anyone takes away your coat, don't hold back your shirt either. Give to anyone who asks of you and find someone who takes your things and don't ask for them back. Just as you want others to do for you, do the same for them. If you love only those who love you, what credit is it to you? Even the sinners love those who love them. If you do what is good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to be repaid in full. But you, you love your enemies. You do what is good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High, for he is gracious to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful just as your heavenly Father is merciful. This is a powerful passage, and it's at this point that Jesus' morality is starkly different from the world and maybe even uncomfortable for you as well. When you hear him say, give without expecting in return. To the one who strikes you, let them strike the other cheek as well. But after all, what did you think love was? What did you think love was about? Jesus says, what good is it? Who cares if you love people who love you? It's like, oh, good for you. Have you loved your children? I should hope so. That's what Jesus says. Have you loved your children? Would you like a gold star sticker for loving your own? What Jesus says is, why don't you start now loving those who are not your own? Who is going to go and love the difficult children in this world? Who's going to go and love those children who have no one else who is loving them? Oh, you love the children who are being raised right. <laughs> Believe for you. Who will go and love those children who are not being raised right, who are already on this great and powerful discipleship course to the evil of the world, who will go out to those ones and hurt for them, be hit by them, and then still go back to those children with love and offer them mercy? Who will go to these ones? You see, that's the morality of Christ. The world talks about love a lot, and all the world ever means is love those people who love you, and if they don't, it's time to protest. But not Christ. Christ says love those ones who are difficult to love. The end of the story may be that person is no good and I need to stay away from them. But at the same time, that's not the end of the story because it continues with your prayers for their benefit. Your hope for their good. And why? The standard is this. Christ says you need to be merciful. And how merciful does he tell us we have to be? Just be as merciful as Christ is. That's what he says. Be merciful because your heavenly Father is merciful. How merciful do you need to be? I don't know. I'll cut you some flag. Just be as merciful as Christ has been to you. We are to be merciful because Christ didn't come to save sinners. Christ 
came, or Christ didn't come to save saints, Christ came to save sinners. Christ came for the rough ones, and so we will be too. You know who it's easy to be nice to? Your nice neighbors. Maybe you have the good fortune of having a good neighbor next to you, right? Some of you do. A few of us do. Do you ever think when you moved into your house, what you should have done was gone and knocked on the doors of people next to you and just do a little informal survey because of how important it is to have some nice people that live next to you? Everything might be good the next time you move is already in your checklist to say, you know what, let's go talk to those neighbors before we live next to them and let's find out what kind of people we're being next to. There's nothing worse than a weird neighbor. <laughs> Unless it's a mean neighbor. Unless it is a mean and weird and loud neighbor. You know who it's easy to love? Easy neighbors. But Christ has called you to pray for the salvation of the difficult ones as well. What good is it for you if you're kind to your easy neighbors and you are firm but fair to your difficult neighbors? Has this happened to you? Have you thought through, you know what? I'm going to be kind to these ones who I get along with well. And these other ones, I'm not being mean to them. I'm just being firm but fair. Is this an excuse for treating them more poorly? Christ has called you to be merciful just as he has shown mercy to you. See, Christ's teaching about love and about mercy are completely opposite of the world's teaching about mercy and about love. So we've got it about wealth and we've got it about love. How about judgment? I don't need to tell you about it. You know how the world thinks about judgment. What's the world think about judgment? You bring up judgment about anything, and suddenly everybody is libertarian. <laughs> whoa, 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 who am I to judge? I don't, I don't, I don't want to tell you what's right or wrong for you. Just you be nice, and I'll be nice, and we'll, we'll leave it to that. If there's one thing that everybody seems to agree on, it's this sort of libertarian idea of, hey, you just do you, and I'm going to do me, and we'll just leave it alone. Who am I to judge? Or for you to tell somebody, hey... I think you're going to enjoy life a little bit more if you do this. I think the good life is going to be found in pursuing Christ. Who are you to judge me? You know what this is like, so what does Christ say about it? Let's go, verse 37. Jesus says, Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured out into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can the blind guide the blind? Won't they both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you look at a splinter in your brother's eye and you don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, uh, brother, let me take out that splinter that is in your eye, when you yourself have a beam of wood in your eye? Hypocrite! First take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. A good tree doesn't produce bad fruit. On the other hand, a bad tree doesn't produce good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs aren't gathered from thorn bushes and grapes aren't picked from bramble bushes. A good person produces good out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart. For his mouth speaks 
from the overflow of his heart. You know, this passage starts out perhaps where you were expecting it to. He says, don't judge and you won't be judged. Don't condemn and you won't be condemned. Rather, forgive and you will be forgiven. But then quickly he goes on to this teaching that you might have thought was unrelated, where he says the student is supposed to end up being like the master. If Jesus corrects and encourages people to true morality, then I think we are supposed to as well, if the student is growing to be like his master. He offers this parable, a humorous and ironic one. He says, who are you saying, hey, you've, you've, got, a little, you've got a little thing right here, when you have a log in your eye sticking out? It's supposed to be a little funny what Jesus is saying, because hypocrisy from a certain angle always looks just a little funny like that, doesn't it? But what does he say? He says, remove the speck out of your eye, then you will see clearly to help your brother remove the log from his. The end of this passage is not, oh, who am I to judge? What can I do? The end of this passage is pursue Christ. Remove the sin out of your life and then become like your master, Christ, and help other people to turn away from sin. He starts off the section saying, do not be judged, and he ends the section by saying, here's your criteria for judging people. Good trees bear good fruit. Bad trees bear bad fruit. How does it make sense to begin with saying, don't judge, and then to end with saying, here's your criteria for judging, good and bad fruit? It goes like this. There's really perhaps the way we should say two things going on. There's condemning people, judging people to be condemned to hell and there is rightly and wisely understanding a situation and then prudently making a judgment about it. If you understand the words to mean these things, the issue is we can use the word judge to mean several things. I tell you what Christ is calling you to do is never to look at a person and saying, that person, hell. That person, heaven. Hell, heaven, heaven, hell. This is not the sort of work we're doing. We don't look at a person and say, no, they're too far gone. I'm condemning them. That person is obviously not Christ. But at the same time, we are casting a prudential judgment about what that person will need. Everybody is called to discernment. That is what judgment is, is discerning, right? To cast a judgment is to discern between two things. Wisdom, discernment, decision is important to be right in the Christian life. God has called you to cast judgments on where somebody is in their faith and what you ought to do and how you can help them, but not to condemn them. Do you see the difference? And by way of contrast, the world is the exact opposite. The world would be quick to condemn, but slow to cast wise judgment. The book of Proverbs, I, I really like Proverbs a lot. The book of Proverbs is all about wise judgments. It's, in fact, it's about the first few chapters, it's the king saying to his sons. It's a father to his sons writing down the book that says, boys, listen to me. Listen, sons, just find all of your attention, boys, and steer it towards me and listen closely. Not everyone who wants to be friends with you is worth having as a friend. Listen, sons, the king says, not all girls are good girls. Not all of them are the kind you should go after. And that's the wisdom of the beginning of Proverbs is him saying, 
You've got to judge these people by your fruit. Who are by their fruit? Who are you going to let near you? Who are you going to draw in close to your life? But what Christ is saying here is this: you need right judgment for yourself. You just don't need uneven scales. You're not supposed to be judged. We all have an internal scale that's born into ourselves, right? And we all judge ourselves just a little easier then we judge everybody else. If you're serious with yourself, you know this to be true. We all go just a little easier on ourselves than we go on anybody else. We must not and no longer do this. Instead, judge with Christ's scales. We are sinners in need of mercy, and as you repent, go and offer this mercy to even more people. As you see and as you go through this, you see there's really only two, two things you can do. There's only two ways to be. Let's finish this right here, verse 46. Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things I say? I will show you what someone is like who comes to me, who hears my word, and who acts on them. He's like a man who builds a house, who dug deep and laid a foundation on a rock, and when the flood came, the rivers crashed against that house and couldn't shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears and does not act is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The river crashed against it and it immediately collapsed and the destruction of that house was great. It can seem to us sometimes that we're building a house sort of in the middle. It's never true, but it can seem to us sometimes that we're building this house sort of in the middle. It can seem to you perhaps that your house is a bit of an amalgam that you've got like uh, the Jesus kitchen over here in your house. But you've got the sinful living room, the worldly living room. It can seem to you that parts of your life, parts of your house are built for Christ, but other parts of your house you have built up to maintain the secrecy of your sin. And friends, it must not be. With every action that we do, we are building a place for us to live. We're building a life. Every action that you've done, every decision that you're making is one more stick to hold up a building. And where is that house that you are building? You've already been building it all these days. You know where it is. There's no such thing as a house on half a foundation. It's as good as a house on no foundation. Friends, please, build your house on Christ. Build your life on Christ. Today, plant the foundation of the repentance of sin. Put up the walls of your house. Make it cozy by church activity and being active at a local church. Add yet more to your house by seeking after other people, by praying for your neighbors. Build your house on Christ today by being slow to speak, by being slow to become angry. Every sin that you do builds you a house in this world. But you, my friends, are called to build your house in Christ. I tell you, as we have so vivid an illustration of the storm coming in Ian, the storm that's just passed by, we didn't get nearly enough of it here, but either way, God bless us. And yet the flood water always comes in life. Difficult times come and your life will be proven to be on Christ or not. But what's more, the day of Christ's judgment comes. 
There's that day when the inspector walks through the building and judges your life. You are right now in every decision building yourself a house for Christ or not. Please come and begin with this foundation by proclaiming Jesus Christ is Lord. Come today and say, for now on, I will build this life on Christ. I am ready to demo all of the life, the house that I have been building in the world. I'm done with all of it. Let's tear it down. Today, I will turn from that life and begin building my house on the foundation that is Jesus Christ is Lord. You're going to be following a morality one way or another. Come and follow the one that's true. Live by the righteousness of Christ. And this, you'll find a life that is enduring. Father God, I thank you that you are so good to us and so kind to us. I thank you that you're so patient. Father, I thank you that you speak so clearly to us. And Father, I pray now that you would receive all of us and this song as worship to you. This I pray in Jesus' name.